three, two, one. Hit it. What? Reversal of fortune. That's why I tell my friends everything happens for Seriously, a reason. You had one job. I, just, I, I can't with Jesus some of these people. Christ. Put down um, your goddamn cell phone. I don't think my dad even knows how to use a computer. Uh, uh, would you rather? Right, trust me. Take no, my advice. Seriously, that legit happened. Welcome to Nervous Habits Podcast. I have a very special episode in store for all of you today where I'm joined by astrophysicist and professor of science at Harvard University, Dr. Avi Loeb, for a conversation on the possibility of the existence of extraterrestrial life. We'll be exploring issues including how confident we can be that there is extraterrestrial life somewhere in our galaxy. What exactly scientists are looking for when they look for life beyond Earth? Why the scientific community has been reluctant to invest in the search for extraterrestrial life? And finally, the likelihood that the Earth will ever be drawn into a black hole. All that and so much more on another episode of... Nervous Habits. Hey guys, I hope that 2021 has gotten off to a wonderful start for everyone listening. Um, Hope that you're all staying healthy, you're getting vaccinated... Uh, making good decisions, of course, and uh, we're gonna we're gonna make it through. We're gonna come out of this pandemic. We're almost on the other side of things. Um, just gotta keep sort of pushing forward. I I've been watching uh, a lot of classic films in the last couple of weeks. And if you're new to the pod, if you're just tuning into this episode to hear my conversation with astrophysicist Avi Loeb, bear with me for a minute or two because I do talk about movies a fair amount on the podcast, and it sort of does bleed into my conversation with uh, with Avi. But that being said, I'm going through a uh, Stanley Kubrick phase right now. Uh, I um, There are a couple of Kubrick films that were on my list for a long, long, long time, but for some reason I never, I've never seen them. Uh, I watched A Clockwork Orange for the very first time last week, and it's one of those movies that the first time you see it, it might leave you with a bad taste in your mouth. It's it's a very graphic movie, very raw. Uh, it What's incredible to me is that the movie even got made in 1971, just considering all of the, the ways that it depicts violence and, and sex, and, and that, that might not seem like a big deal in 2021, you, you know, because R-rated movies are, are pretty much the norm nowadays. But you know, consider that this was made 50 years ago, um, and and if you watch the film, some of the things that they that they portrayed were, I mean, it's, you know, it's it's it was pretty eye-opening uh, to the point where it was, it was there were calls to ban it in the UK, and in fact, it was banned from several countries. Kubrick received death threats uh, to himself and his family um, for making the film. But, you know, I, I do think there were a couple of interesting things about the film. First of all, the language, the language that was used, and it was, I guess it was derived um, from Anthony Burgess's novel, A Clockwork Orange, but there's a whole system of, of um, words like the, uh, i trying to see what I remember, um, the vidi means to see, to look at someone, the yasik is the tongue, uh, gulliver is the eyes, um, cutter is money. A droog is, is someone in your gang or your group. Knees, knees is underpants. Um, a polyclef is a skeleton key. So all this, it's like a whole a whole language to, uh, to to the book and the movie, which is interesting. But also, you know, the, the film had some interesting <clears throat> remarks on what it means to be good and whether it's better for someone to be programmed to be good or to have 
the free will to choose to be evil. Um, so yeah, I, if you haven't seen Clockwork Orange, definitely uh, recommend it. And and the other Kubrick film that I saw, I've, I actually have seen this a couple times, but I rewatched it the other day in part um, to get myself thinking <laughs> in in the astronomical mindset. Uh, from a conversation with Avi, but I watched 2001 Space Odyssey, which was uh, perhaps Kubrick's magnum opus. And most people have, have seen it at some point in their lives, but it's it's a pretty ambitious movie in that Kubrick attempts to reconcile all these extremely complicated topics like the nature of mankind and the search for intelligent life and um, you know artificial intelligence. <clears throat> but what struck me most about the movie is just how eerily silent uh, it is for for most of it, and and actually, I read that there are around eighty eight dialogue free minutes in the movie. So it's a two hour forty four minute movie. There's an hour and twenty minutes of silence. That's more than half the movie that had no words. Could you imagine a movie getting made in twenty twenty one where, and I'm not talking about like a movie like The Artist, which is just a silent film, but a a blockbuster film that just didn't have a lot that just didn't have a lot of dialogue. I don't think directors nowadays would have the confidence to make a movie like that. And it's it's funny that how how much the perception of a movie can change over time because in two thousand in nineteen sixty eight when the movie was made, the initial reviews were so negative. I mean, hundreds of people walked out from the screening. The author of the book on which the film was based um, left the premiere in tears at the intermission. Uh but yet, you know, 53 years later, it's considered one of the greatest films of all time. Um, and yeah, I mean, the first 20 minutes of the film, if, if, if you watch it, is you're just watching a bunch of apes scavenging for food. So you might think to yourself, you know, did I stumble upon National Geographic here? But uh, it's it's Kubrick attempting to sort of uh, narrate the, the dawn of man and um, it's evolution over time, the past, present, future. Stick with it. Stick with it because there are uh, a lot of, you know, th- there's, there's a lot to unravel. There's a lot to unpack. I feel like we could do a whole podcast episode just analyzing that movie. But um, if you're, you know, into classic films or you're just someone who appreciates cinema, I would definitely watch both A Clockwork Orange and 2001 Space Odyssey. So that being said, in this episode, I spoke with Easily the most brilliant person who I've had on the podcast, Professor and Dr. Avi Loeb. So a little bit about Avi. Um, Avi is the Frank Baer Jr. Professor of Science at Harvard University. Uh, He received a PhD in physics from the Hebrew University of Jerusalem in Israel at age 24, led the first international project supported by the Strategic Defense Initiative, um, and was subsequently a long-term member of the Institute for Advanced Study at Princeton. Avi has written eight books and over 750 papers on a wide range of topics, including black holes, the first stars, the search for extraterrestrial life, and the future of the universe. He's been the longest-serving chair of Harvard's Department of Astronomy, the founding director of Harvard's Black Hole Initiative, and director of the Institute for Theory and Computation within the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics. Avi also serves as the chair of the Board on Physics and Astronomy of the National Academies and is an elected fellow of the Academy of Arts and Sciences, the American Physical Society, and the International Academy of Astronautics. Um, Avi is a member of the President's Council of Advisors on Science and Technology at the White House, 
and a member of the advisory board for Einstein, Visualize the Impossible of the Hebrew University. And lastly, he chairs the advisory committee for the Breakthrough Starshot Initiative and serves as the science theory director for all initiatives of the Breakthrough Prize Foundation. Perhaps the longest <laughs> introduction I've had on Nervous Habits, which is a testament to just how much Avi has achieved and how widely revered he is in the field. And I had written... Uh, I'd written, <laughs> and I had read Avi's articles in Scientific American a few years ago. Um, I didn't quite know who he was. I didn't. I didn't connect the dots. Uh, but I, you know, later came to learn that in the scientific community, he is the expert and the champion for the search for extraterrestrial life amongst his peers. And you know, I, I was, uh, I guess, intrigued by this, but sort of, uh, you know, not set on whether or not. There is intelligent life close to Earth, but I did become all the more convinced um, after reading his book, which came out on January 26th, and that's extraterrestrial, the first sign of intelligent life beyond Earth. Um, and, you know, we'll talk more about the book in the episode, and I'll mention it after the episode as well, but what you'll find about Avi throughout this conversation is clearly he knows the issues, perhaps better than any living person, um, and and somehow he's able to explain these extraordinarily complicated topics, um, put them in terms that anyone can understand. But, you know, he also has a remarkable sense of humor. And, and uh, you'll see that both of us are sort of laughing through a lot of this conversation. We started out talking about the search for intelligent life, but we ended up meandering. We're talking about black holes at one point, Stephen Hawking's drinking habits. Um, the conversation was just under an hour, but it certainly could have gone for a lot longer. And so without further ado, my conversation with Professor Avi Loeb. Professor Avi Loeb, welcome to Nervous Habits. Thanks for having me. So Avi, to prepare for our conversation today, I did two things. I read your book, Extraterrestrial, uh, first. And second, I rewatched the classic film, 2001, A Space Odyssey. I think, <laughs> I think you were uh, six years old when that movie came out, right? Yeah, but uh, frankly, I don't uh, watch a lot of science fiction films and don't read much of the science fiction literature because... I very often get uh, upset when I see the storylines uh, violating the laws of physics. Wow, but, but you do know that 2001 A Space Odyssey, they say it was you know, extremely accurate uh, given, <laughs> given the time. Well, uh, the point is that the travel between stars is a very long journey. It takes light four years to travel to the nearest star to us. And uh, imagine a spaceship that travels at a speed much less than the speed of light. Uh, if we were to uh, use the rockets that we are currently launch launching, like uh, New Horizon or Voyager 1, Voyager 2, uh, to get to the nearest star, we, we had to launch them uh, back when humans left Africa in order for them to reach the nearest star right wow. now. That's that's incredible. Um, so so you actually didn't want to be a, a, an astrophysicist, an astronomer when you were younger. You wanted to be a philosopher. Right. And uh, plan B was to be a farmer. I, I collected eggs all my, uh, every afternoon uh, throughout my childhood. Oh, wow. And, and when did you make the, the transition? Uh, so in Israel, where I grew up, uh, there is obligatory service in the military at age 18. And uh, I had two options, either to run in the fields with a machine gun or uh, to do intellectual work. And the second option appealed to me because I was interested in philosophy, philosophy and uh, uh, physics sounded uh, closer than uh, running in the fields. And so uh, I was recruited to an elite program uh, that recruits 20 to 30 
uh, youngsters to uh, do work in physics and mathematics that uh, is beneficial to the security of the country. And um, um, I was fortunate enough to get my PhD at age uh, 24, but also propose a, a, a project to the Star Wars initiative at the time by Ronald Reagan. And it was selected as the first international uh, project to be funded. Uh, General, General Abramson liked the idea, he came to visit us and that brought me to Washington and uh, in one of the visits, I decided to visit also Princeton, New Jersey, the Institute for Advanced Study, where Einstein used to be faculty member decades before, and they offered me a five-year fellowship. Uh, they took a gamble on me, uh, one of the professors there, John Bacall, and, and uh, without that, I wouldn't be where I am. Uh, and everything was hard work uh, throughout, getting adjusted to, to the nomenclature of astrophysics. I didn't know how the sun shines. When I started. And even, I mean, the, the transition from being a farmer, uh, I, I think it's, it's particularly remarkable. You wrote about in, in your book, which, which we'll chat more about um, in a few moments, how you would look up at the night sky and, and sort of wonder, you know, where the light from the stars was coming from. For folks listening, uh, just to clarify, I know this is very rudimentary astronomy, but when you're looking at a star in the night sky, Avi, you're staring into the past, right? That's right. But also when you look at the mirror, you're looking at yourself when you were a nanosecond earlier. Because there is a time, it takes time for the light to bounce off the mirror and get back to you. Now, if you place the mirror very far, it will take more time. And so if we look at the source of light very far away, it just takes time for the light to reach us. And what we are seeing is an image that was produced a long time ago. So if you're looking all the way back to the edge of the universe, we are seeing how it began. And the, it's good in a way because it's sort of like a time machine. You can see what happened in the universe at early cosmic times. Uh, that record is still available to telescopes. And that's how we learn uh, what happened after the Big Bang, for example. Absolutely. Yeah, I think listeners should should buckle up because some of the numbers that um, that you provide in the book are staggering. For for those who have yet to read the book um, and who aren't familiar with the specifics, uh, Avi actually notes that the Milky Way hosts tens of billions of Earth-sized planets with surface temperatures similar to our own. Um, and, and you state at one point that when you add all the galaxies in the observable volume of the universe, um, it increases the number of planets to a zeta, a figure greater than the number of grains of sand on the beach of Earth. I mean, these figures are astounding, Avi. It is, uh, but I think the biggest message that the, the sky is sending us is be modest. Uh, because, um, you know, we live on this uh, grain of sand uh, on the landscape of a huge beach. And how can we be arrogant, even if we accomplish a lot on this grain of sand? It's just such a small piece in the big picture. Uh, but moreover, we also live for a short time. And, um, you know, we should be grateful for that, but humble and modest and not uh, assign too much significance for our superiority relative to another person. You know, the, uh, one of the thing that is, things that is always puzzling me is, how much of our effort and time and energy is dedicated to feel superior relative to another person. And that makes no sense given the big picture of the universe. And uh, any competition we have among ourselves is really meaningless. It's uh, uh, like ants uh, fighting on a single grain of sand, you know, and who cares? Uh, and um, 
the other sign of modesty is that we are not at the center of, of the action. You know, uh, obviously Aristotle, you know, early on in human history, the ancient Greek philosopher, uh, perhaps was uh, uh, justified in assuming that uh, we are at the center of the universe. So he had this picture, mental picture of the spheres around the earth and uh, it turned out to be wrong. And Copernicus and Galileo realized that, uh, that the earth is moving around the sun. It's not that the earth is at the center of anything. And um, uh, I think we are making the same mistake with respect to life. Uh, we think that, you know, since we haven't found yet uh, other uh, extraterrestrial life, that we might be alone. And, uh, you know, that's similar to the mistake that my daughters ha had made when they were infants. Uh, when they were at home, they tended to think that, yeah, they are very smart and, you know, very special and the, the world centers on them. And when they went to a kindergarten, they found a lot of other kids uh, and got a better perspective. And uh, one way for us to maintain our modesty, which is very much appropriate, is to find others. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. It's almost like uh, object permanence for infants or for dogs. You, you take something away and they think that it's gone and then, then you put it back. That's sort of um, <laughs> naivete. But Avi, I want to ask you, for, for folks that aren't familiar with um, the search for extraterrestrial life, what are the prerequisites for life on another planet? What, what exactly are astronomers looking for when they look for civilizations? Right. So um, our imagination is often limited by what we already know. So what we know is life on Earth. And life on Earth um, is uh, associated with chemical reactions in liquid water. So you would conclude from that that you need liquid water to get life as we know it. Now, this is not a trivial statement because if you take uh, water ice and just put it in vacuum in space and warm it up, it will go straight into gas. It will not go become liquid. The only way to get liquid water is if you have an external pressure of an atmosphere. And that's why the existence of an atmosphere around Earth allows for life. So Mars had an atmosphere early on, but lost it. And after Mars lost its atmosphere, everything dried up on the surface. We don't see oceans of water, liquid water on Mars. And perhaps that's the reason that Mars lost uh, its habitability and there is no life there, but we want to find out whether it had life. The Perseverance uh, mission that will land next month on the surface of Mars, we look for signs of life that may have ex existed when Mars had an atmosphere. So just to summarize, you need liquid water and liquid water can exist only if there is an atmosphere around the planet. And that means the planet needs to be roughly the size of the earth because smaller planets lose their atmosphere. Mars is 10 times smaller in mass, it lost its atmosphere. The moon doesn't have an atmosphere. You need a, a, a rock big enough such that the force of gravity can bind or keep the atmosphere uh, bound to that uh, object. And that's why when astronomers search for life, they often talk about Earth-sized planets mm -hmm. around sun-like stars at the right distance so that uh, the temperature on the surface would allow liquid water to exist. And that is the current frame of searches that astronomers are doing for potentially habitable planets and maybe even signs of primitive life. They are thinking about building instruments that will in the future detect oxygen in the atmosphere. 
the problem I have with that approach is even if we detect oxygen, it will not tell us uh, conclusively whether life exists because uh, the earth for the first 2 billion years didn't have much oxygen in the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. So there was microbial life. There were microbes on the surface of the earth, but not, not much oxygen in the atmosphere for half of the earth's lifetime. Uh, and that means that if you don't find oxygen, it doesn't mean that life is not there. And moreover, oxygen can be produced by other pro chemical processes, by breaking water and so So it will never be conclusive. And the one way to get conclusive results is if you find industrial pollution, because uh, those molecules, the CFC molecules that are produced by refrigerating systems and industries here on earth, they cannot be produced by nature. And uh, if you find evidence for that with the same telescopes, that would be conclusive. There's so much to unpack there. For folks who have been following the news, Avi, a couple of months ago, there was phosphine discovered on Venus. Uh, now, I noticed that you said that liquid water was a prerequisite, assuming that the atmosphere was conducive to that. Would phosphine be one of those other um, compounds that might be indicative of life, even if there was no water? Well, that's a good question. And um, actually, uh, the idea behind the phosphine was that it, it, it's... Uh, produced by microbes in the cloud deck of Venus. So uh, the surface of Venus is too hot. It went through a greenhouse uh, uh, effect and, and so the surface cannot host life on it. But uh, if you go up to an elevation where the temperature is just like the temperature at the lower atmosphere of Earth, uh, at the cloud decks of, of Venus, you can find that the temperature and pressure of, of the atmosphere to be very similar to, to the conditions on Earth. And, and the idea behind this claim was that maybe there are microbes in, in droplets, uh, droplets of water or some other liquid, uh, and they produce the phosphine. Now, hmm. we don't know, well, there are still, uh, since the announcement was made on the 14th of uh, September, uh, 2020, uh, the observers uh, reduced the significance of their detection. It's now five uh, standard deviations and it's not uh, completely uh, beyond the reasonable doubt that they actually detected phosphine. So we have to wait for more data on that. But uh, even if phosphine is definitely found there, uh, the question is whether only a biological origin, only microbes can produce it. Because we know that, um, for example, volcanic activity can produce it, but there is just not enough volcanic activity on Venus to do it. Uh, and on Earth, phosphine is produced by uh, microbes. So um, it's very intriguing, but uh, not yet conclusive, a work in progress. Most of science, I mean, the public needs to understand that most of the time in science, uh, we don't have enough evidence to have make conclusive uh, statements and it's work in progress most of the time. And it's also a, a learning experience. Uh, scientists can make mistakes and uh, they make mistakes very often. Yeah. And so uh, the image that many scientists try to portray whereby, you know, they only announce things after they are hundred percent sure about them and they're always right. That image is, is not correct because you see in the phosphine case, they try to maintain that image. So they, they sealed uh, all information until the press release, the, the press announcement. And 
Then they sat on a stage uh, and announced the discovery. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now that sounds respectable. And that is what the mainstream of the scientific community wants. Only announce results when you are 100% sure. Okay. So they did that. But after, after the colleague, their colleagues uh, went back to the data and, and criticized the way they did the analysis, they had to revise the conclusions. So the point is, it's an integral part of science doing it by iterations and trying to pretend, you know, with a facade that uh, it's just like a teacher in a class where you tell the students what the truths are, what the knowledge is. This is not the way science works. And even if you are sure, and they were sure they had this press conference, they had to revise the, the conclusions. And it's not clear whether that, the, those conclusions are, are correct at this point. So. The point is that why not from the get-go be straightforward with the public, tell the public it's, there, there is always some uncertainty and it's, it's done by iterations and sometimes scientists are wrong. And, and if the public sees that, then I think there will be more trust in the scientists. It wouldn't look like an occupation of the elite. It wouldn't look like the scientists are uh, putting themselves on a pedestal where they lecture the public about, you know, it would be more of a shared experience where, you know, there's, there is some evidence we're trying to figure out the truth together. Okay, so I know um, we're going we're gonna to get to Omoomoa in, in a few minutes, but I really want to stay on this topic because uh, it calls to mind, there was a quote from the book, Avi, which reinforces everything you're saying, where at one point you said, there's so much we do not know that I often wonder whether another civilization, one that had the benefit of pursuing science for a billion years, would even consider us intelligent. And that really hits home your point about modesty. Modesty, when you conceptualize it, intelligence is sort of like a linear spectrum. And to the left is the single-celled organisms. To the right is mammals and then primates and humans. Who's to say that humans aren't, you know, there aren't to the right of humans uh, species exponentially more intelligent than we are? That would be that arrogance that you're speaking of. Right. And I don't think that we are the smartest kid on the block uh, because, um, well, our technologies were developed only over a hundred years and there could be kids on the block that uh, developed their technologies for much longer, you know, a million years, a billion years. And um, there, there might be, and also this uh, soup of chemicals that we talked about that uh, created life as we know it, you know, it's just like baking a cake. And if you look at recipe books, you can start from the same ingredients and bake ver cakes of different qualities. And I don't think that we are the most tasty cake that one can imagine, you know, just look right. at the news uh, cycle and we are wasting a lot of resources and fighting each other. We're not very intelligent. One reason I aspire, I, I look at the sky for intelligence is because I don't find it very often on earth. <laughs> that's, that's very funny, but also uh, poignant as well. Avi, I want to ask you something you've probably never been asked before. Maybe I, I would imagine, but I'm sure listeners are wondering if there is intelligent life anywhere else in the universe, whether it's in the Milky Way or elsewhere, what might these beings look like? You know, should, should right. people listening be expecting green tentacled slime monsters like we see in cartoons? Would they be more or less like humans? Would they be corporeal at all? What, what is your best guess? They will be, we will be shocked. They will look nothing like we expect. And uh, I actually have uh, an essay on, in Scientific American that I posted uh, yesterday on this subject. Wow. Uh, and take, for example, the nearest star, okay, that it's the, this uh, Proxima Centauri, which is the dwarf star, 
the most common type of star, actually this, the sun is not the typical star in the Milky Way. It's uh, smaller stars that are much more abundant. And our nearest neighbor is Proxima Centauri. It's 12% of the mass of the sun and uh, roughly half the surface temperature of the sun. So it's cooler than the sun and it emits mostly infrared radiation. So the sun emits visible light. That's why we have eyes that are sensitive to uh, what's most available to us, which is visible light. And uh, near Proxima Centauri, you know, there is a habitable planet. It's called Proxima B. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, if there are any animals on it, they will have to have infrared eyes. Uh, wow. And that, uh, that, that would look very different. Uh, and by the way, since these types of stars are the most common, there is no surprise. It's not surprising that the interstellar travel agencies do not uh, assign Earth as a good, uh, as, as an attractive tourist destination because our grass is green. The grass on most habitable planets is dark red. And so imagine you are an animal with infrared eyes. Would you go on vacation to earth? No way. <laughs> it, will be, it will be just too bright and uh, in the wrong part of the spectrum, you would go elsewhere. So maybe that's why they don't visit us. Uh, we should entice if there is if there are creatures out there, we should entice them to come for a visit and share with them a water-based drink, you know. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, wow. but the point is that I think it would look something like we have never seen before and very unusual. And uh, even more so if we deal with technology because uh, technology that is a thousand years old would be unrecognizable to us. So I can see why you don't like science fiction movies because you probably watch ET and think to yourself, you know, the the extraterrestrials don't look anything like that. That's preposterous. Yeah, it, it looks too too cute, uh, too similar to humans. Yeah. Um, that, that, that's great. So uh, I I want to get into Oumuamua because that's pretty much the focus of of your book. Um, it obviously was an interstellar object discovered in 2017. Um, Oumuamua means scout or messenger from a distant object. So sort of obviously set the scene for listeners. What was so significant about this object at the time that it was discovered uh, three, four years ago? Right. It was the first object from outside the solar system that we've spotted near us. And uh, at first, astronomers thought it, it's probably a comet uh, because these are the most abundant objects we have in the solar system. And if, if this object was lost from another star, um, it, it's probably a comet. And the only problem is it didn't show any cometary tail. There was no trail of gas coming from it as a result of uh, evaporation of, of its surface uh, by uh, sunlight. Um, so um, people said, okay, maybe it's just a rock that doesn't have any ice on it and therefore it doesn't evaporate. And uh, the only problem with that was that it exhibited an extra push away from the sun that you often find in comets as a result of the evaporation. And uh, there was no evaporation. So the question arose as to what creates this extra push. Uh, and then another anomaly about this object was that it, uh, as it was tumbling, like a piece of paper tumbling in the wind, uh, it was uh, changing its brightness, the amount of sunlight that it reflects uh, by a factor of 10, which is a lot. Uh, mm -hmm. And that means that it has ex an extreme geometry. And in fact, the best um, model for explaining the light curve was that of a flat object. Uh, pancake shaped, not cigar shaped. 
And so uh, the question is, given all the anomalies, and there were several others that I detailed in the book, um, what is this object and what gives it the, the extra push? And we suggested in a paper, scientific paper, that it may be just the reflection of sunlight uh, from its surface that gives it the extra push. And uh, that would imply that it's very thin because uh, otherwise the reflection of sunlight will, will not um, uh, accelerate it uh, enough. And um, uh, then uh, if it's very thin, nature doesn't make such things. Uh, you, uh, it resembles a sail on a boat that is being pushed by the wind. Uh, here, the sail is pushed by light. And that is called the light sail. And we are currently, our civilization is developing this technology for space exploration. The one advantage is you don't need uh, the spacecraft to carry any fuel because it's being pushed by light. Okay, so if we have any doctors listening, it sounds like you almost sort of went through a differential diagnosis. You said, okay, so it, it could be a rock, but or it could be a comet. It doesn't have the cometary tail. It could be a light sail. It could be a reflection of light. But ultimately, in the, in the essay you wrote in 2018 for Scientific American, you said, you know what? I think that this is a relic of an alien civilization. So, so, so why was that? the ultimate conclusion you came to with regard to- Because it, it looked nothing like anything, nothing like uh, an object we have seen before. And uh, in fact, after I wrote this, um, the, the Scientific American essay and also the scientific paper, um, in the subsequent years, uh, mainstream astronomers tried to explain Oumuamua's qualities, you know, unusual qualities, its anomalies based on the natural origin. and. All the scenarios that they contemplated involved the some nothing that that we have seen something that we have never seen before. Okay, like for example, a hydrogen iceberg, or a, a pile of dust, uh, and uh, uh, these objects that they invoked to explain Oumuamua seemed less uh, plausible to me than an artificial object and. That's why, you know, I just followed the clues. Uh, I, I think that we should put a technological origin on the table and not dismiss it. Currently in the scientific community, there is a taboo on discussing this possibility, even just mentioning it. And uh, I think it's inappropriate given that the Earth-Sun system is common. And um, given this sense of modesty, why should we assume that something like that does not exist out there? And then, um, the, you know, when you walk on the beach, you often find the seashells and rocks that are naturally produced, every now and then you stumble across a plastic bottle that is an indication that the civilization is out there. So we can do the same thing by searching our backyard within the solar system for objects that come from far away. So you mentioned, you say that the scientific community wasn't particularly receptive. I'll tell you back in 2017, 2018, I didn't hear a lot about um, Oumuamua. I, I didn't see it in the news. I, I wasn't reading about it in the papers. It wasn't trending on social media. Um, so it, there seems to be a general lack of awareness about this. Do you think in part that's because of the you know reluctance of the scientific community to be open-minded? Definitely. Um, so... Um... The scientific community uh, prefers business as usual. And, you know, I uh, went to a seminar at Harvard with a colleague of mine and uh, about Oumuamua. And at the end, when we left the room, uh, he said, this object is so weird, I wish it never existed. Uh, and to me, that's uh, appalling because a scientist should always be, uh, sh should be happy about receiving 
a lesson from nature. You know, if nature gives you an anomaly, you should be happy because it teaches you something new. Uh, you cannot be upset because it moves you out of your comfort zone and you want everything in the sky to be rocks. You cannot be upset about that. Uh, reality doesn't go away even if you ignore it. So the point is by putting blinders on the interpretations that we are allowing, uh, we actually just maintain our ignorance. We don't uh, do anything else. And uh, as a scientist, you know, we should entertain all possibilities uh, that seem plausible. And um, I think the, the problem with uh, the astronomy community right now is that the search for technological signatures is regarded peripheral. There is not much funding to it. Young people are bullied if they are interested in it. Mm -hmm. And so this is similar to stepping on the grass and saying, look, it doesn't grow. Uh, and uh, it needs to change. And of course, the, the public is extremely interested in this. The public funds science. And I think it's irresponsible for the scientists to, to say, we have the instruments to examine these questions. We just don't want to discuss it. Um, and um, Beyond that, you know, I, I think it's the most conservative approach is to say that we are not special or unique, that since the circumstances are being reproduced in many other places, the outcomes are also reproduced. And we just need to, to look for it. Uh, and uh, the public is being starved uh, on this subject by the scientists not wanting to discuss it. There is a taboo. And uh, as a result, you know, Nobody's talking about it. And when you see an object like that, you don't hear much about it. Uh, but I hope that my book will change that uh, perception and, and will uh, drive the scientific community to a better dialogue with the public. We should all work together. I think that's part of the reason why your book has and will continue to generate so much buzz because there is such a dearth of, of this, you know, not just in literature and in the scientific community, but in the general, in the media and, and in the public. I do think you're right. There is an appetite um, for this, this kind of research. And it does seem like some of the smartest minds are being lured to other areas in astrophysics or astronomy, um, as opposed to learning about extraterrestrial life. And Avi, I wonder if some of that is because of the psychology of it as well, as opposed to just the business side of the scientific community. But I wonder, and you talk about this in the book, if there's a general ambivalence um, for the search for life, because we don't like to think about it on a psychological level. What do you think about yeah. that? I think that's, that's an interesting possibility because, um, you know, with my daughters, uh, obviously, you know, they, they thought that the center of the, of the universe that they have special qualities until they went to kindergarten. And uh, one way for them not to become modest and to continue to be arrogant would have been to stay at home. Right. And uh, it's a way of maintaining your illusions about yourself. And uh, psychologically, it helps your ego not to see uh, something else that might be better than you uh, or that may threaten your preconceptions. Uh, and there is a fear from that that is very deeply rooted, you know, and uh, perhaps that explains it. Uh, obviously, it will have implications to religion as well and to other uh, aspects of our life. But the way I see it is that knowledge is always beneficial. We always want to know what reality is because ignoring it is not to our benefit. You know, science gives us better knowledge of what reality is. And if you look at medicine, uh, there were in the dark ages, there were arguments against uh, operations, against dissecting the human body because it has some magical powers, because it has a soul. And, and if 
modern science would attend to these arguments and would they say, let's shy away from studying bodies of humans because there is all this nonsense being said about them, where would we be in terms of our medicine today? Um, science should ignore uh, you know, things that do not make sense uh, that are being said in the, in the science fiction literature that are being said about unidentified uh, flying objects. It's completely irrelevant. If we can address the same subject with scientific tools, with our instrumentation, with our telescopes and answer the fundamental questions, we, should, we have an obligation to do it, given that the public is interested. It's it's really a shame that that um that you know you're not as 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 much a fan of the scientific movies because this is just such a great opportunity to mention the Matrix and the red pill blue pill because it just seems like it's that sort of ignorance that they're choosing to take the you know to take the blue pill and live in their simulated realities rather than understand the red pill you're one of potentially billions of of races of you know intelligent lives. Well, I should say. There is uh, the situation in science right now in physics is even worse than we were discussing. It's not just that uh, you find mainstream uh, physicists shying away from a discussion about the search for technological signatures or alien civilizations. It's that you find people pursuing, I mean, theoretical physicists pursuing ideas that have no foundation in evidence, nothing to back them up from experiments uh, such as extra dimensions, the multiverse, string theory. And this is considered part of the mainstream and respectable. And people do intellectual gymnastics with sophisticated mathematics, but that has nothing to connect to experimental data. No, right. no, no umbilical cord to any evidence that we are collecting. And they still claim that they carry the torch of physics forward. And I ask you, how is it possible to have a culture like that, that uh, entertains ideas that very, mainly serve the purpose of showing that the person who works on them is smart. Okay, so that's the main, so people do all kinds of sophisticated math that demonstrates that they are smart. But is that really the purpose of doing physics? I, I was brought up thinking that we're supposed to find what nature is. Not, it's not about us, it's about nature. Mm -hmm. and to have this distortion that the mainstream regards speculative ideas that are not testable by experiments as completely valid and people have been working on them for decades. And then another portion of the mainstream says, no, we don't want to discuss the possibility of technological civilizations because that's part of science fiction because of this, because of that, uh, because it's never aliens. Uh, to have these two things combined, to me, is a complete distortion of the culture of the way science should be done, which is driven by evidence, driven by curiosity, driven by the public's interest. If the public is funding science, we should attend to the public. I can hear in, in your responses um, the inner philosopher in you, Avi, about how you really just want to answer the big questions, not turn away when the evidence doesn't perfectly, you know, match up with, with what your expectations were. Uh, in the book, you mentioned that um, if we ever do encounter intelligent life, humans will be ill-equipped to deal with it. So, you know, imagine that that there is a discovery a couple of years from now, um, somewhere on earth, maybe, I, I know you probably saw the monoliths that were um, discovered and what that might mean. What do you think the reaction would be and why exactly are we ill-equipped to deal with it? Yeah, I mean, there is no protocol, for example, it, uh 
for a, a contact with another civilization. The United Nations that didn't come up with a set of rules and uh, nobody's thinking about it. Um, but it's an, an unlikely event. I think uh, we are not of in, uh, enough interest to merit a visitation to the planet. I think most likely we will find something flying by or we'll find a signal or, um, and then uh, I think it will have a major impact if the evidence is conclusive. Uh, for example, a photograph of an object like Oumuamua that doesn't look like a rock. Um, the response would be dramatic because um, it would change our perception, our, our place in the, in the universe. It would imply that maybe we are not the smartest kid on the block, you know, especially if it's te advanced technology. Right. Maybe we can learn something from it, from it. There would be new areas of of uh, studies such as uh, astro-linguistics, how to communicate with other civilizations, uh, uh, astro-politics, uh, astro-economics. Uh, you can think of any combination of astro with things that we have right now, which are limited to earth right now. So uh, um, I think it, it would just be the most important um, discovery in the history of humanity. Okay, so it would change the education system for sure because there'd be more of an emphasis on astronomy and and you know the specific niche areas in science. It would probably change government, you would imagine, and and I mean religions. I can't imagine the impact that it would have on you know monotheism and and polytheistic religions. Right. I mean, in in the case of uh, governments, I would hope that uh, we can unite as uh, the human species rather than have separate nations with borders and disputes and so forth. That, that's my hope that it will bring. Mm -hmm. uh, with respect to religion, uh, it's not clear. I mean, the, I spoke with religious people and many of them claim that it wouldn't affect too much. But if you look back at history, Giordano Bruno uh, claimed many centuries ago that, uh, that during the Dark Ages that he that um, other stars might uh, be just like the sun and that they may have a planet like the Earth around them. He didn't know it for sure, but he just made this conjecture. And he said, okay, in that case, there might be life on those planets. And uh, he was burnt at the stake for, for saying that. It was considered heresy at the time. And it just shows you how it can be offensive to some people to recognize that there is life elsewhere. And in the case of uh, Giordano Bruno, it was because the church at the time, not the church now, but back then, they were, uh, they, they said, well, if there is life elsewhere and it's sinned, then uh, you need to have duplicates of Christ to save that life. So you, you need multiple copies of Christ visiting each and every planet on which life had sinned. Hmm. And uh, that was uh, unacceptable. And so they burned the guy. And it, it, it comports with what you said earlier about how close-minded the community is with regards to uh, Copernicus and, and how, you know, people were convinced that the earth revolved, didn't revolve around uh, the sun. The earth was the center of the solar system. Um, now, Avi, I, I know that you also, you know, you wear a lot of hats at, at Harvard and in, in your studies, and you also were involved with the Black Hole Initiative, the, word, the world's first center of the interdisciplinary study of black holes. Um, what piqued that interest? Because that's sort of tangentially related to what we're saying, but, but also a little bit different. Right. So back in 2015-16, uh, um, we, 
we decided to establish a center that focuses on the study of black holes because they are very uh, enigmatic objects, uh, very exciting objects, structures of uh, pure space and time that uh, serve as an ultimate prison. Even light cannot escape from a black hole. And it was, uh, it's a fascinating subject. And we brought together astronomers, physicists, mathematicians, and philosophers uh, under one roof. And uh, I was the founding, I, I am the founding director of that center. Uh, and um, at first I worried that it would be just like the um, Tower of Babel where people will speak different languages and never be able to cooperate. And uh, it turned out that after a few months, uh, collaboration started and, and now it's a very active and, and um, interesting uh, intellectual environment that I really love and enjoy. Uh, in part because I started with interest in philosophy and I ended up as an astronomer, but now I have an opportunity to speak to philosophers and we collaborate. Uh, and I had uh, several papers with philosophers. And uh, so it's an interdisciplinary environment that is quite uh, unusual. And over the past three years, the Nobel Prize was awarded twice for the study of black holes yeah. in physics, the Nobel Prize in physics. And that's remarkable. So uh, I just gave uh, a talk yesterday, a colloquium in Stockholm, uh, congratulating the Nobel Committee for their, their good taste. Uh, but uh, the, the title of my talk was uh, Black Holes Are in Vogue. And uh, this is something that should not be taken lightly because uh, in 1939, Einstein, Albert Einstein wrote a paper that he published in Annals of Mathematics where he argued that black holes don't exist. So mm -hmm. we went a long way and I'm sure that Einstein would have uh, loved the new evidence that black holes uh, exist that came from uh, gravitational waves produced when two black holes collide uh, at the edge of the universe. And that was one of the Nobel prizes. Yeah, I mean, it, I, think, I think you're right. It is very much in vogue and um, it's also a terribly complex issue. I feel like we could spend a thousand podcasts just fleshing out, you know, black hole discussion um, as, you know, uh, in and of itself. For those listening, Avi, who might, I, I know this is, you know, a little bit absurd, but they might be concerned with being drawn into a black hole. What's the likelihood that the earth will be drawn into Sagittarius A, that's the closest supermassive black hole, or that the sun itself will descend into a black hole, Avi? Oh, very small. Um, the sun, let me start with the sun because we know what will happen to it. Uh, it, once uh, in, in about 7 billion years from now, which is uh, roughly uh, twice or a little less than twice the current age of the sun, uh, it will uh, consume its nuclear fuel. So the sun is, or a star in general, is just a nuclear reactor. You have a hot material inside that burns up through nuclear reactions, just like in a nuclear reactor on Earth. Uh, except it's a fusion reactor. So you get light elements like hydrogen coming together, bumping against each other and creating energy by fusing. And, um, and, and this nuclear reactor, in difference from the ones we have on Earth, where they are situated in concrete, you know, uh, a star is held by gravity, by the force of gravity. So it's a nuclear reactor that is stable uh, and, and keeps itself together by the force of gravity. And then once it finishes its fuel, there is no more stuff to burn. Uh, it starts cooling off. Uh, well, at first it expands and then it, the core of the sun will start cooling off. Uh, 
and eventually become a, re a remnant, uh, a metallic remnant, a, a piece of metal uh, the size of the earth, which is called the white dwarf. Mm -hmm. And that will carry a, about two thirds of the mass of the sun, will sit in an object that is the size of the earth. And um, that's what the sun uh, will be um, more than 7 billion years from now, like 8 billion years from now. Um, and then, uh, so no worries about the sun becoming a black hole. And the, the worries- yeah, the sun's not gonna be, be a black hole. That before it does it, it will actually um, expand and then it will boil off all the oceans on earth. And that will happen within 1 billion years. We have to find another home because currently all our eggs are in one basket. We have to spread them. Because in a billion years, we will definitely need to leave Earth. All this talk about global warming, you know, mitigating our impact on the environment, that will become completely irrelevant when the sun will boil off all the oceans. We must be out of here. Okay. Uh, so we should think about where to go and our destinations. You know, for example, the planet around Proxima Centauri has a permanent day side, a permanent night side, and there is a permanent sunset strip in between. And my daughters really want to have a house there in the permanent sunset. <laughs> but uh, speaking about uh, the black hole at the center of the Milky Way, mm -hmm. it's uh, six billion times more massive than the sun. But it's extremely far away. It's uh, 24,000 light years away. So its gravitational pull on the Earth, on, on the sun, is negligible. It will never soak us closer. Uh, the only impact that it can have, and that's actually... Uh, a paper that I'm working on right now, uh, what is if there are flares, if, this, if there is matter falling into that, that black hole and that creates flares, X-rays and ultraviolet radiation that could impact life on Earth, but at a very minute, uh, not at the dramatic level, uh, but at a modest level that could have an impact. Okay, and, and just since we're talking about black holes, for, for those listening, um, very elementary question, but can you talk about spaghettification? If you did get drawn into a black hole, <laughs> what, what exactly would happen to a, an object? Right, so let's talk about the black hole at the center of the Milky Way that is six million times the mass of the sun. Uh, if the sun were to approach it, then uh, when it gets to about 10 times the size of the black hole, the, the region from where you cannot escape, if it gets to 10 times that, which is roughly the Earth-Sun separation, uh, at that distance, the sun will be spaghettified, uh, become a stream of gas, and will be basically destroyed. This is called tidal dis dis uh, disruption of a star. And we see such events, actually, in other galaxies. Every 100,000 years or 10,000 years, a star comes too close to the black hole and gets, uh, gets uh, spaghettified. And, and we see a flare from the infall of the gas and the heating up of the gas. It, it shines brightly, and we see the, the flare. Um, and um, uh, if, on the other hand, you imagine an astronaut uh, falling towards the black hole, uh, then nothing will happen to the astronaut because our body is not held together by gravity. Uh, the sun is held together by gravity, so it, it can easily get ripped apart, but our body is held by chemical bonds that are much stronger than gravity. So as a result, we can pass through the so-called horizon of the black hole intact. An astronaut can go through and not much will happen to the astronaut unlike the sun case. 
wow. but then once once you get in into the event horizon into the region where you cannot get out of uh, within half an hour we will fall to the singularity the so-called the pathological place where Einstein's theory of gravity breaks down because the curvature of space and time diverges and there our body would be ripped apart uh, so closed and so we you know we will be short-lived uh, less than an hour once we enter the astronaut would not survive by the way I gave them um, a talk about black holes at the, when my daughter was in the kindergarten and um, the, the, one of the boys was fascinated by the story of what happens to an astronaut. And he kept asking me, and what will happen to his body? And, and then the, the, uh, the, care, the, care tech, the person in charge uh, said, uh, uh, Dr. Love, would you mind uh, speaking about something else, please? It will cause nightmares to the kids. <laughs> Uh, well, well, if anything, it relieves the nightmare knowing that it's a billion years before any of us have to worry about this. So oh, yeah. um, <laughs> I, I'm sure a lot of listeners are, are put at ease by that. And, and I know that also there was another uh, physicist that dedicated their life to the study of black holes. Um, you worked with uh, uh, Dr. Stephen Hawking for a little bit as well. What, what was that experience like? Well, um, I, I didn't actually uh, do research with him, but I hosted him in my home when he came to visit for the inauguration of the Black Hole Initiative, actually, and also the inauguration of uh, the Starshot uh, project to launch a, a, a light sail to the nearest star. And I, you know, he, he was an amazing person because uh, he was uh, disabled, couldn't do much with his body, but he had uh, a very uh, positive spirit. Uh, he was forward looking and enjoyed life. That was amazing to me because other people would be depressed by their physical condition, but but he really enjoyed life. In one of the evening uh, events, uh, when it ended, he said to his caretakers, he said, uh, I'm bored, let's go to the bar and have some drinks, you know? And, uh, and uh, you know, he also had the affairs throughout his, his life with his nurse. And uh, so he sort of lived the life to the fullest, despite uh, the, the limitations and, um, and, and, you know, I, I went to his uh, funeral um, uh, at, in, at Cambridge University to pay respect. And um, at the end of the funeral, which was a religious uh, ceremony, uh, they played the Frank Sinatra song, uh, uh, Fly Me to the Moon. And uh, in a way, you know, it represents his uh, joyfulness uh, about life and, and also about doing science. Uh, he was extremely original and capable scientist, uh, one of the best that we had in the 20th century. That's amazing. You, you really don't um, hear about that side of him, you know, so it's, it's, it's uh, awesome to hear that perspective. So uh, just, just to round out our discussion, I have, I have a couple more questions for you here. Occasionally, we get young listeners on the podcast um, who sort of like the, the, you know, young boy who is interested in, in black holes um, is, you know, looking at beginning their career in the sciences and might have an interest in the search for extraterrestrial life, given all of the you know, struggles um, and challenges that we've spoken about, what sort of advice would you have for, for young listeners? Oh, um, I think uh, the future will be better than the past. And that's why I'm doing what I'm doing. You know, and when I was young, uh, I served in the military and uh, there is a saying among the soldiers that sometimes a soldier has to put his body on the barbed wire so that others can pass through. And so my hope is that by preparing the ground, 
in the way that my book does, uh, I will make this subject acceptable and the future generations of young scientists that are excited about the search for extraterrestrial life will be able to pursue it without hesitation. And I actually have a book, a textbook coming out in six months uh, that is about the science of the search for life. Uh, extraterrestrial is more of a popular level book, but uh, the way I see it as an integral part of uh, mainstreaming science. And I hope that within my lifetime, it will become such. Yeah, I, I think I, I think it's, um... It, it's very likely because of what we've discussed, you know, about uh, the buzz and and how things are going to continue to develop in the field um, moving forward. And, you know, to bring our conversation full circle in the book, you mentioned that, you know, the reason why you were interested in astronomy was to answer the big questions in philosophy and religion, like what is the origin of life and are we alone in the universe? I'm curious, and I know you've been asked this before, but how have your answers to these questions sort of shifted uh, after your decades studying astronomy or, or have they? Oh, they did, definitely, because uh, the more knowledge I acquired, uh, the sharper the questions became. And uh, currently, we don't know what happened before the Big Bang, for example. So I'll give you an anecdote. I'll uh, unify the issue of uh, life and uh, the beginning of the universe. And so imagine that we develop a theory that unifies quantum mechanics and gravity so that we can understand how to make a universe in the laboratory by irritating the vacuum. Suppose we find a way of making a synthetic universe, a baby universe. Hmm. Well, that would explain the Big Bang because the Big Bang may be our umbilical cord that leads us to the laboratory where our universe came from. And then our universe gave birth to us. And we will create a baby universe in our laboratory in which additional civilizations will create another baby universe. So just like human beings having babies and the human species continues, uh, it might well be that uh, the, the, there are baby universes all the way. Baby, it's like that meme. Uh, it's, uh, it, do you know the one where it's like, it's all cake, it's the astronaut. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Um, <laughs> are, you, are, are you familiar with simulation theory? Because it's sort of what, what you're talking about. Oh, no, no. I, I, I dislike this theory. I think it's equivalent to being high on drugs. I mean, if you think about the, reality not being real of course you can think that way if you if you have enough money in your bank account right so you have people taking care of you but but if you have to work for your money uh and if you have to pay attention to reality you cannot think that it's a simulation because uh you know you <laughs> if you try to cash something you don't have uh you will be put in, in, under very difficult circumstances and and so i think it's important to uh <laughs> be close to the evidence and believe that reality exists that because uh, i haven't seen yet any crash the way you see in computer simulations you know like a pixel uh, not looking sharp or something uh, falling apart until i see it i would believe that reality is real and that's the way i would behave and uh, obviously you know people that are on drugs they don't really get uh, the information from reality and Believing, having, having a, an academic position at Oxford and arguing that we live in a simulation it may be possible because you have tenure, you can say that and you can still keep your, your salary every month. But that's not a, 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 an approach that I would advocate for a, 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 an active human being that is trying to make a living. You know? 
unless you can make a living off of your research <laughs> that we're living in a simulation, it's sort of, <laughs> sort of circular. Um, well, listen, Avi, this has been an absolute pleasure. I, I've enjoyed speaking with you almost as much as I enjoyed reading your book. Um, I'm sure listeners want to know where they can go to buy Extraterrestrial and how to learn about your work in general. Yeah, so the book is available on Amazon and any other uh, uh, bookstore. Um, and uh, it's uh, coming out on the 26th of uh, January, so just a few days from now. And um, I encourage anyone that enjoyed the discussion here to have a look at it. Uh, you can find more information about me on my website. So just uh, put my name, Avi Loeb, in, on Google, and uh, you'll get to my Harvard website that features uh, all my commentaries in Scientific American, some videos, and, and my scientific papers. I'm definitely going to look up that that article that you mentioned from Scientific American um, about the it was about the prerequisite for life. Was that about the phosphine you mentioned earlier? Well, that also. So I have every week or two, I have a new uh, commentary in Scientific American. And uh, if you go a few back, then you get to the phosphine one. If you go to the last one, it relates to something else we discussed. So just scroll down the titles and you will find the one you're interested in. Got you. Well, I mentioned this uh, to you earlier, but your book was was incredible. I couldn't put it down. It's one of those books where I just found myself saying, oh, I'll, I'll read a couple pages, but then got through it in a couple hours. Um, and, you know, you've left me and the listeners with a lot to think about, um, about, you know, just just the big questions and um, how how little like like you said, a grain of sand on the beach uh, is, is humanity. So I really appreciate you joining me and taking the time. Thank you so much for having. I enjoyed a lot our conversation. So that was my conversation with uh, astrophysicist Professor Avi Loeb. And, you know, there are many times when I have guests on the podcast and I sort of wish the conversation could go on longer. And this is indisputably one of those times. I, I feel like, you know, we barely scratched the surface, um, Avi and I, about sort of the the search for extraterrestrial life, about the impact that the presence of extraterrestrial life would have on on human civilization, about the psychology of why it's so difficult to wrap our mind um, around the possibility of other, you know, intelligent beings in the universe, um, about black holes, about the echo chamber of the scientific community. A part, part of me thinks that um, our conversation, uh, you know, didn't do justice to any of these, these ideas because they're just so incredibly complicated. Um, <clears throat> in particular, I want to call attention to, because I know that it was a very fast-moving and expansive conversation and, and a lot got lost, but I want to call attention to uh, something that Avi mentioned um, in our conversation about just the, the sheer infinitude of the universe. And, you know, it's something that you, those listening probably you know, you think about from time to time, you read about it in a textbook. It's not something that you stay awake at night contemplating. But again, I mentioned the stature in the podcast, the Milky Way hosts tens of billions of Earth-sized planets. Tens of billions, okay. Tens of billions of Earth-sized planets with surface temperatures similar to ours. And if you add together all of the number of hospitable planets in the observable universe, it's greater than the number of grains of sand on all of the beaches of the earth. I mean, I, I think Avi just hit the nail on the head with, uh, you know, the, the note on, <clears throat> on modesty. Who are we to think that we're the only intelligent life force in the universe? 
just with the in the grand scale of the entire universe we're the we're the only one it's it's just it's absurd it's um and and you know it, it also calls to mind sort of the the issues in the scientific community about how uh, and Avi says this in the book um there's a quote that reads that scientific progress has been stifled many times over the years because the gatekeepers who established and enforced orthodoxy believed they knew all of the answers ahead of time. To state the obvious, putting Galileo under house arrest did not change the fact that the earth moves around the sun. That's a quote from Avi Loeb's uh, book, Extraterrestrial. And it, it, it really, it makes you wonder if, the future, how the future will regard our contemporary skepticism towards the search for extraterrestrial life. Um, and, you know, why so few scientists are open to the idea. Avi mentioned encountering the one scientist at the at the conference who remarked, oh man, I, you know, I wish we didn't have to deal with Oumuamua. I wish the, the object never came into the, <clears throat> into the solar system. You know, rather than looking at this as the answer to a question about the universe um some scientists just view it as another complicating factor that they don't want to deal with and uh i think it's problematic and i think that's part of the reason why um i'm really excited for the success of avi and his book in that more people will be talking about this um you know i I think as he said even if the scientific community isn't interested in this the public certainly is. So that was that was really interesting. I didn't even get a chance. To, there's a couple questions I didn't even get a chance to ask Avi about. Um, uh, maybe at some point we can have him back on. But uh, he, he argues in the book that we should invest in another branch of astronomy, space archaeology, which is the search for technological civilizations. So that might be another thing um, you know, for us to consider. And, and, and again, would be interesting to hear uh, sort of obvious take on that. And, and you know, the other aspect of our conversation was I, uh, he had a lot of interesting, you know, details to share with all of us about his work with the uh, Black Hole Initiative at Harvard, the first center for in- interdisciplinary study of black holes, and and about how Sagittarius A, you know, is, is potentially, uh, would potentially be problematic in a couple billion years. And in a billion years, the sun's going to boil all the oceans on the earth. Um, so I'm hoping that this, you know, that part of the conversation sort of reverse any myth- misconceptions you had about <clears throat> about black holes or getting sucked into one. I know when I was when I was a kid, that was a big fear that I had after learning about black holes in, in science and in astronomy, worrying that um, one day I would, you know, wake up and I'd look out my window and I'd see a giant black hole <laughs> sucking everybody in. Um, so uh, I, I empathize with the child that Avi refers to who at the conference was um was super curious about it and it uh you know all in all i i deeply deeply enjoyed my conversation with with avi and as i said sort of at the outset of this podcast episode you know what was perhaps most uh extraordinary about avi is is a sense of humor especially studying these features of the universe it's hard not to feel so small uh like ants fighting on a grain of of sand and uh to maintain your sense of humor and a good spirit in spite of all that is nothing short of extraordinary. Um, so 
the only thing I would say is is I, I do I do hope <laughs> I do hope Avi at some point becomes more open to uh, science fiction films because even if they're not uh, always extremely accurate, um, I do think it, it there is something to be said for you know providing fodder for the imagination, for cultivating that creativity, for enabling people to, to, to think about, you know, what, what lies beyond earth, even if it's, even if the aliens don't quite look, um, don't quite appear in reality as they do in, um, in ET or, uh, or alien or 2001, a space odyssey, but definitely check out Avi's book, extraterrestrial, the first sign of intelligent life beyond earth. It, it came out on January 26th. Um, so we recorded the episode a little a little before the release date, but it should be out now as you listen to this. <clears throat> and I hope that you got a lot of, out of this conversation. I know I certainly did. So next week, my friends, is the 50th episode of Nervous Habits Podcast. Um, technically, technically, if you're keeping score at home, it will be the 63rd episode of the podcast. But not counting all of the bonus episodes and the check-ins and the year roundups and hiatus updates, this is the 50th official episode of the pod. I am still sort of figuring out how I want the episode to go, but I'm really excited to reach that milestone. (laughs) Nervous Habits turns 50. That's coming up next week on Nervous Habits. Thanks so much for listening, guys. This has been another episode of Nervous Habits Podcast. Follow the pod on social media, on Instagram at Nervous Habits Podcast, on Twitter at Nervous Habits underscore. You can watch full episodes and clips on YouTube. Just search Nervous Habits Podcast. Write to the pod at Nervous Habits Podcast at gmail.com. If you have not rated and reviewed the pod on Apple, we'd really appreciate it if you could do that as well. And remember, in the grand scheme of things, we are just a speck of sand on an entire beach of the universe. Keep that in perspective and remember what's important. Thanks so much for listening. Stay modest and stay nervous. Take care.